0: Welcome back to Me Smell.
1: Home of a brand new accent wall. Wow. <laughs> yeah.
0: We spent, what is it, two days? Not even
1: two days. Um, you know, a day of uh, prep and decision making, and then a day of execution.
0: It was, how accent do we want our accent wall to be? Do we want it to be subtly accent, or? With
1: a basswood beige.
0: Or, do we want it to be like, boom, pa accent?
1: Laurel tree green.
0: Guess what we chose. I'll give you a second. I'll give you a second. What did we choose next?
1: The one Ashley liked. Laurel tree (laughs) green.
0: (laughs) I mean, do you like it? I love it. Okay. Uh, I mean...
1: Of course I love it.
0: I think... I think it looks great in here. It does
1: look great. I'm so excited for uh, our next guest interview to be in here.
0: Yeah. It's over Zoom and they get to... Whoever our next Zoom interview is...
1: That was the whole impetus for doing this, is we wanted a better Zoom background.
0: We're just on Zoom so much these days. That's
1: the world we're in.
0: You know, we had our vision wall behind us for a little while, on on this wall that we painted. And it was great, but it was hard to reach because it was behind the couch. And then it was also that it looked so busy in the background. And we wanted something simpler, and I I think we've done well here.
1: Something simple, natural, and clean, just like the food we feed Dee.
0: <gasps> wow, segues.
1: Super treats.
0: Super treats? Tell uh, me more. Oh,
1: if there's any kind of special high reward treat we can give Dee, it's always super treats, spelled with two O's.
0: S-O-O-P-E-R. That's how super they are.
1: They're veteran owned. They are. They're also vegan.
0: Yes, woman and minority owned as well.
1: And Dee loves the taste.
0: She truly loves them. We either give them to her like as a high reward like after a walk or I'll like put it on her on top of her Kong treat with like peanut butter on it. Ooh y'all
1: Today's guest, the guest you're about to hear, had such a good dog with him sitting under his desk. So it's a dog-themed episode. We
0: don't very, we don't often have Dee, Dee in the room during a Mismo interview. But I disagree.
1: Was... I'd say lately she has graduated to That's that fair. point where we now trust her to be quiet yes. in the room.
0: I do remember for one uh, Dom Bourne when we had Dom mm. on the show. That was the first time we actually did have Dee Dee in the room, and it was just constant stress. I was just trying to give her toys, giving her treats, just trying to make sure that she wasn't going to make noise, but she did well.
1: She's matured. Tell the good folks at home how they can get a discount on their Super Treats for their dogs.
0: If you go to supertreats.com, again, that's S-O-O-P-E-R, treats.com, and type in the code MISMO at checkout, you get 10% off of your purchase. I promise your dog will love it as much as Dee Dee does. I'm Mick Torres, I'm Ashley Argota torres and
1: And we we are are Mismo.
0: Today we talk to playwright and USC professor Oliver Mayer.
1: Oliver was my playwriting professor back at USC and he is also the author of more than 30 plays, including Blade to the Heat and Members Only. And he's the first professor we've ever interviewed. I loved his take on some of the questions we've asked a lot of our alumni in the past. Enjoy! Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oliver Mayer, which you always just had us call you Oliver, not not Professor Mayer. You were, I think, one of the first, that's one of the big transitions from high school to college is you don't say Professor Mayer or Mr. Mayer. But anyway, Oliver (laughs) is such an accomplished playwright, a tenured professor at USC, and we are very lucky to have him with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Ashley, and gosh, Mick, I remember when we were in class together, and it was so much fun to teach you, and then now to work with you as an actor, and now to be on the podcast, so thank you. Uh, Thank you.
0: This is a selfish question, but what was Mick like as a student? Wow.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, he was the stud, so let's start there. Uh, You know, he was like incredibly cool and relaxed and really nice to people, and that doesn't always happen. Um, and then like very supportive of other writers. This was a playwriting class. So people were bringing work in and a lot of them had never done it before. So between us, no one's listening, right? A lot of it wasn't very good. Now I have to, you know, always support and everything, but Mick, you kind of naturally did that too. You always were supporting. And I believed you could also discern that work had to get a lot better, but Mm -hmm. that you were nice about And I appreciate that.
1: Oh, thank you. That's that is uh, one of the questions I have for you. Um, But I was actually going to start with a little easier question than that. (laughs) And just uh, start with the dogs, because we both have dogs in the room. We were just talking before we started recording about Donaldo, your dog. And Didi is sitting right here with us. And so your dog's at your feet right now. Do you always when you sit down to write, is Donaldo usually in the room with you?
2: My dog has a little bit of uh, separation anxiety. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, he needs sometimes to like lean on me while I'm teaching. Usually in the middle of something really deep, all of a sudden he's like right next to me. And I try to, you know, move him aside or just let him kind of hang with me. But he's 13 now, so he's sleeping. He's about two feet away and he's sleeping. But uh, when, I, uh, when Marlene, my wife, and I first got him 13 years ago, you know, he was about the size of, of a foot. You know, he was a, a human foot <laughs> and he was a little below, you know, 12 inches. And he was the cutest thing ever. He looked like a plush toy. And um, so, you know, I just decided and I was living on campus at USC uh, in residential housing. They gave us wonderful uh, accommodations. And so uh, I just decided like, OK, you're just going to be with me. So when I would teach, she'd be with me. And when I, I had a play at the time that was happening downtown, we just got him and just put him on my shoulder. And then we just, you know, and then we had to go somewhere like San Francisco or something. I was like, let's go. So he just was in the back seat. So he's a great traveler. He loves the theater. He loves classrooms. He loves treats from staff and co-eds and everybody and petting, stuff like that. And he's just like really, really cool. But he does
1: kind of like to be close. that's the best thing ever (laughs) he's always uh i I love it um we just recently did another mfa playwright reading and this one was over zoom and the only thing that was missing was don aldo because he's always there when we do it in person and the bagels and coffee uh yeah when we all get
2: back together when the you know the bubble finally you know bursts in the best of ways That'll be the best thing is we're going to have bagels and coffee and I think I will bring champagne and, you know, we can drink it out of, you know, like, uh, what are those cups, those frat cups, so that no one
1: knows what's really in <laughs>
2: it. We're going to
1: celebrate. Yeah, we will. Um, well, thanks for calling me cool in class because I I will reciprocate and say you are very cool and you bring a coolness to writing into just being intellectual and learned, which is a difficult balance uh, to achieve. I feel like a lot of times when you're cool or the, the jock or the stud, you get labeled in a, a less than intellectual way, but you really are both and you bring it all to the table. Um, and you, you, uh, from Blade to the Heat and Members Only, which we saw uh, mm-hmm. to, to have your standout plays. We saw members only at the LATC. You bring sports into your writing, particularly boxing a lot. Um, and in our, our research of you, we read that uh, you got into boxing. You, when you were a teenager, you started taking boxing lessons, which started because you got bullied. Um, and I, can you just talk a little bit about how those early years in, in boxing, um, shaped you both as a, as a writer and as a man?
2: Yes. And it's funny that even today when I was writing, um, I think I still utilize some of the things I learned when I was in the ring, things that I was taught and also things I just did in order to survive. I still do. <laughs> I just don't have to punch people to do it. Um, but in a lot of ways, I, I learned some of my own limitations and also that I could maybe expand beyond them. And I'm just 13 years old when I first uh you know really got in the ring yeah I I was brought up by um my father who was older um and Anglo um he was the fighter and you know he'd been in the war and in the World War II and he had a busted nose and he was uh he liked the fights um and my mother loved you know loves she's still alive but loves um you know, classical music and beautiful paintings and, you know, always be a dance. And, and uh, my father did too, by the way, but, but that's how she led with things. So she brought me up like that. So she brought me up soft and around fifth, sixth, seventh grade, you know, next thing, you know, I'm getting punched or made fun of by everybody and didn't know what to do. And my father just said, you know, punch him in the nose. So I finally kind of learned to do that, but I, it was, you know, getting more serious in middle school. It's, you know, people can start to hurt each other more. And one day I just came home and I was upset and I went, they had yellow pages back then. I went to the yellow pages and I looked up boxing gyms and I called and the guy picked up, I said, can I join? He said, yeah. And when my parents come, came home, I said, I just joined a gym. And they said, How much does it cost? And I said, Oh, I didn't know it cost anything. I forgot to ask. And of course, it didn't cost a lot. Anyway, I went and for about three, three and a half years, I just spent maybe one to two days a week in that gym. I was, you know, studying and doing a million other things, but I I learned from real boxing trainers. My trainer had actually worked even with Joe Lewis in the 40s and 50s. I was in the ring with professionals in the time. They treated me well because I was 14, 15 years old. But I mean, I was in with some really good guys. And I eventually have a trophy here somewhere in the room, um, One trophy. And when I left the ring, my mother was in the first row and I had it in my hand and I'm like, mom, isn't that great? She said, yeah, you're done. Wow. <laughs> <She> <laughs> got me right off. I was still 16 years old, you know. <laughs> and so I've ever since been on the other side of the ring ropes, which is the better place to be. <laughs> but uh, I feel as if the experience was the best thing that could have happened because I didn't lose the classical music and the, you know, beautiful music and the the dancing and the, Art, but I was able to include a certain kind of like I understand now, uh, really basically, that uh, getting hit is not the worst thing in the world. It's going to happen anyway. And you want to avoid it, but you can get over it. And that there are things that hurt worse than that. And also, you know, you think bloody nose wherever that hurts you know what hurts the most is getting hit in the body I, I got hit a couple of times in the body and I still feel it like three decades later yes. so I learned some things that are just valuable and then when I go and write, write about stuff I feel as if I've got a lived experience like I've sweated into those bodies and I'm I don't know I have a right to I have a right to write about and I have a lot of compassion for it
1: too mm. So that's fantastic. I, I connected to that so much when you first, uh, I remember you had us read Zoot Suit and then, uh, and then we read Blade to the Heat and we talked about boxing when I was in class with you. And I think I told you this story then, but, but, and my mom is going to now be mortified that I'm telling this story on the podcast, <laughs> but my dad and I got in the garage, he bought a bench press and some weights and, and, some sparring gloves. And it started as I just hit the hands. And then he said, Okay, now you need to learn to get punched. And this all started because a kid threw a rock at my bike uh, while I was on it riding home. And I was getting bullied a little bit too. So I was growing up in, you know, a a Palos Verdes. So everything was pretty safe. But my dad grew up in Queens. And he (laughs) was in a fight after school every other day. And he said, you're just at that age where you got to, you know, you have to punch some people and you might get punched and, and uh, a few fights are great, uh, great to shape you. So I, <laughs> I got a couple of those bloody noses. Um, and that was, my mom said a similar thing. I was done. I also was not allowed to play football. She said, you can kick if you want. I said, no. Uh, <laughs> but, if you're pretty big,
2: I mean, you would—I would think probably the coaches would be like, "Yeah, we want Mick." Maybe she wouldn't let you do it though.
1: You know what's funny? I—I uh, I was small until uh, until I quit sports. I was five foot three my sophomore year of high school, and then I had that heart surgery, and then my blood started flowing better, and I grew to nine inches. And uh, but by then I had switched over to theater, and. Um, <laughs> You know, so I actually never got to play sports with this body, not competitively. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think they just go so hand in hand sports and theater. I think sports is theater. I think mm-hmm. two teams going at, at the same, they both want to win or two fighters, one's gonna get knocked out or, or one's gonna lose by decision. But can you talk too about about the? It seems obvious to me, but I feel like a lot of people in our circle in theater, it's kind of that cool guy um, thing where it's like, if you play sports or, you know, what is sports ball? Like, they, <laughs> they don't want anything to do with it. But can you talk about the crossover <laughs> a little? Sure, I can.
2: And I completely agree. I think that they're they come from the same place. And uh, they're, they're, let's just start with the pe- We do them both because people are watching <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and people yeah. are enjoying and people in their way are betting on us or betting against us, including in the theater. So that, uh, yeah, I mean, whether it's actual money or just in a certain way, wishing us, cursing us or cheering us on, always happening, sometimes both at the same time. So we're being lifted and pulled by all those forces. But at a certain point, talking to actors, I think you know what I mean, it all goes away if you're doing it right. You know, yeah, you hear that and you know where you're at, but in another way, maybe a time stands still and you're inside yourself in your own heartbeat and you have to bring the best of yourself, or at least what you have. If that's the best or not, but it's what you have to the moment. And if you're, uh, you know, Kobe Bryant, that meant what it meant. And obviously, if you're, you know, um, a great actor, uh, uh, any number of whom I could say uh, we see what that is. But almost, uh, you don't have to be Kobe. Um, you can just be, you know, in a sense, true to yourself and you will have done that thing that matters. You will have kind of tested and proved that you can be there. And that's, um, you know, I, I, I don't really, you know, chase fame because that um, doesn't matter. I, of course, would like it. I like money, I'm not stupid, you know, but, but it doesn't it doesn't matter. What matters is to bring my best to the table And as a writer, the table starts with what I'm writing, eventually gets around the table when we meet to do work together. And eventually that table becomes a stage that people come and see work. But it's the same as I think for me when I got in the ring and realized, oh, I better keep my hands up. I better move. You know, I I need a certain level of respect. My absolute favorite boxing story of my own was when I got knocked out because I I was in the ring with a professional with a very good record. I think he had 27 wins. He had a few losses, but he had a lot of wins. He was a Mexican guy and I was much taller, I'm tall. So even at 15, I was real tall and he didn't know me. So the trainer said to him, "Um, he's a kid, go easy. And I heard him say that, (laughs) I heard the trainer say that. So I was really good that day. I was really good that day. So I kept hitting him with my jab beautifully. And then I brought the right hand hand over and I, I made him bleed. And so, and I kept, I was doing beautiful work. And I did this thing, which Mexican fighters tend not to clinch. So I, I hit him and then I'd clinch. So he couldn't hit me back, push him away, do it again. Did it three or four times, blood coming down the side of his nose. And I could feel him getting mad, but I'm like, he knows I'm a kid. So I'm just doing my thing, you know? And I think I hit him the best one yet. I really hit him. And then I clinched with him and I pushed him away and doing my thing, looking all cool. And I couldn't see him. I looked around, I just he wasn't there. It's because every time I pushed him away, he allowed me. This time, when I pushed him away, he stayed with me. He was right underneath me. So I'm like, oh shit. And he (laughs) sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I said, "Uh oh, that's what I yeah. And he was a lefty. He threw a right, a right jab hit me right in the jaw and I went up against the the ropes and very clinically one punch to the solar plexus. And 10 minutes later, I still couldn't breathe. They had to take me, carry me out of there. And I sat, you know, and about 10 minutes later, I had enough breath to get up. I said, thank you. And it's still one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. Because I was being a little bit of a jerk, wasn't I? Because I knew I had this extra advantage, and I needed to be brought down a bit. But I also, you know, I mean, it's good to know, isn't it? It's good to know that you're not infallible. It's good to know that you're not a god. You're a person. You're a person, and it's also good to know that you can get over, it, even if it takes ten minutes.
1: There's something though about fighting someone better than you. Uh, I mean, a, a pro boxer, you know, just to step into that ring. Um, I we stopped boxing when I got my dad mad enough because I hit him hard enough that it it brought in that deep thing where he actually felt like he was in a fight and and then he said okay now now we're done. But the other <laughs> end to was. my the other end really to was. my boxing uh, <laughs> was I fought this guy um, who used a choice word, gave me a hard time about doing theater more than baseball. And he was on my baseball team before and he was 30 pounds bigger than me. And I said, you want to call me that? Let's, let's fight. I'll, I'll see you Friday night, you know? And
0: uh, (laughs) You're such a different person now. (laughs) Oh yeah. Uh,
1: But, but this is,
0: no, this is, I love hearing this. This is the best.
1: And he hit, so they brought, they, I couldn't use my own gloves. Because I didn't, we had moved to Utah. I didn't want to ask my dad where we had stored the gloves. So I went there and somebody had gloves for me and they were too small. And so he's hitting me and I said, stop, stop. Because I tried to get the gloves to fit. They weren't fitting. And as I'm saying, stop, he waxed me in the chin and my feet lifted up off the ground. I went almost horizontal and then splashed down. And a video... Went around the whole school. No. Mick got knocked out by this guy. But just because I got in the ring with him, uh, he never really gave me a hard time. He didn't call me that anymore. Exactly right. You know? You got some serious street (laughs) cred. Wow. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Do we think we can find that video somewhere so I can see it?
1: I hope not. I don't know. (laughs) 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 Um, But uh, we turned out all right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to switch gears a little bit from boxing to we, as we were reading uh, and researching about you before we did the podcast today, um, I read that your wife is an actress, Mm -hmm. right? And that you like to write a part for her in every show that you do. So I, obviously we love working together. I wanted to know what it was like for you to work with your, with your wife
2: probably my favorite thing it's gonna keep me writing you know as long as we're together which is hopefully forever so we met that way and we um my wife is a really fine actress her name is marlene forte and uh you all can look her up and some of you probably already know her. you've seen her probably this week on something because she's one of those actresses who finds her way into all kinds of tv shows and then she's on stage a lot too for those who uh like to go to the theater and she does indie movies too um but she's a founding member of labyrinth theater company and Lab- labyrinth theater company is most famous for uh, phil seymour hoffman so phil hoffman was you know but he wasn't even one of the founders he came in right after it was founded she's an original there's an original 12 or 13 mm-hmm. it may include some really great great particularly latinx actors uh, John Ortiz, uh, um, David Zayas, uh, Judy Reyes. Um, uh, I'm gonna forget some others, but there's some wonderful, wonderful people there and she's one of them. And, and it was, I, I think uh, she got a great education, but it was her education in the theater in that group that just is like, um, I don't know, it, um, it made her who she is. It made her a really, really interesting actor. She's also just a fabulous person. She was born in Cuba. And uh, her parents had to leave because of the politics, but they moved her to uh, New York first and then New Jersey, where she's got a real sort of Jersey edge to her, probably <laughs> like mixed ed. And, uh, so Cuba plus Jersey is a really yeah. cool thing. Um, and I got lucky that um, even though we met in New York, she was living in LA. And we honestly were with other people. She was actually married to someone and I was in a very you know, long, long long-term thing when we met. So that was tricky. Um, But I did tell her when we first met just for a few days, I told her, I'm going to write you a play. And I think she thought that meant, you know, what you think it means. It's a line, you know, she just thought it was a line. Well, about three months later, I had a local theater, uh, uh, Black Dahlia, contact her because I had written it. And it was based on this one evening where we just walked together. It had started to rain. We were at this workshop intensive for the theater company. And uh, and I just said, hey, you want to take a walk in the rain? And we went and it started rain a little harder. So we went into a gazebo and she talked a mile a minute. And because I think she was afraid I was going to kiss her. And so, you know, she's talked and talked. And I just took it all and I turned it into a play. Now, not like. Nothing like, I didn't, wasn't taking, it was just like things making, you know, I was using things she said and then making all fiction around them. And that became a play called Dia C. Flores, which we eventually did a few times in which, you know, she's the lead. Um, and it's interesting at that play because it's a, a play about love and it's uh, definitely heterosexual, homosexual and uh, between brothers and sisters. There's only four characters, but between the four of them, we hit them all. And in my mind, the heterosexual relationship was funny and the uh, gay relationship was um, very romantic, but the brother-sister relationship was the deepest one, the deepest love. Mm-hmm. And I was just exploring it all. And I think she saw not only that I listened to her and I could turn it into plays, but that you know I was really interested in the nature of our love and love in general. And so when I did that, it felt really good. And I said, well, I'm just going to keep doing it. Besides, you're just a really good actor. And by this point, we were pretty deep and getting married. But, you know, I tend to write a couple of plays, well, at least a play a year, a couple of plays a year. So it was just uh, like batting practice when you really got an eye for the ball and uh, just, you know, hitting them, hitting them. So five, six plays in our first probably six years of being together. Then maybe I took a little break and took, took a breather and now I'm doing it again. So, in the meanwhile, you know, she does work with other writers, but uh she's not just exclusive to me. She's only <laughs> exclusive to me in our marriage, but not in, I, she doesn't have to be monogamous in terms of other playwrights, but I think I'm still the num- the number one for her. My colleague Luis Alfaro uh lo- loves to work with her as well. I think he described her as a uh KFC uh chicken leg uh, that she was so tasty.
0: wow i hope that's on her resume that's pretty great pretty cool (laughs) that's so romantic i love that that
1: is after one
2: night wow
0: wow that's Uh, beautiful
2: well i had a really great subject
1: that's great
0: (laughs) Aw, yay i love love that's so wonderful
1: (laughs) (laughs) um that's beautiful so all right um, just, we're like gushing just, now. yeah, you know, we're like, we we're saying, we're getting married in, in three months. We're, we're just, we love it. Um, you know, we, I continue to write, um, your, your class really did stick with me. And I, um, I mean, so I was a BA, which is an interesting thing at USC because I, uh, you're not necessarily one thing. I definitely consider myself there to learn how to act, but you have to learn how to build sets and do some costume and all sorts of things. So I tried playwriting and it clicked so well. I love it so much. And we talk a lot about it on the podcast, um, about how it's one of the things where as an actor there feel like there are so few things that you can do that are in your control completely. Um, when you're not working and sitting down to write is one of those things that it's up to you whether you sat down to write that day or not. Um, So whether the work gets made or not, it just is something that I still love. And I I don't, you know, I'm not like one of your MFA playwrights, but it's, uh, I had another teacher who said, you know, people don't sing because they're not Grammy award-winning singers, but people should sing. Singing is great you know, so you were talking about some of the work is amazing uh, and you can recognize talent in your classroom. And then some of the work, you, you know, okay, <laughs> isn't a Pulitzer, but they're in class and I'm going to teach them this semester. So, you know, great. Um, do you, do you adjust styles uh, when you recognize great talents in, in class? Or can you just talk a little bit in that capacity about about being a professor. And also what I said about just, uh, even if you're not gonna be a great American playwright, it's it's healthy and important to write.
2: It's essential to write. I think everybody should write. And really <clears throat> the only difference when people call people writers and they deserve to be writers, it's because they're writing. I didn't say writing well. <laughs> <laughs> it's because they're writing. and whatever it is you do, lifting weights or accounting or whatever, you know, whatever it is, the 10,000 hours or whatever the level of mastery, at a certain point when you've done it enough, when you've done that many sit-ups, you've got a beautiful body. And when you've written a heck of a lot, well, then you can write. That doesn't mean, again, that it's going to win a Pulitzer or that it's going to be on the Mark Taper stage, but it does mean that you've put that time in And so anybody who wants to start with me, I always try to give them green lights all the way down. I don't try to get in anybody's way. And rather, I'm very interested in inspiration uh, and not judgment, because I don't like my writers to um, judge their characters. And that way, they shouldn't judge their own character as themselves, nor should I judge them. So I made a joke earlier on about, you know, some writers, some work is a lot better than others, which is obvious, but it doesn't matter. What matters in the room is that um, we're in a shared pursuit that we're there for each other. But in the end, each of us is just trying to be as true as they can be to an experience, uh, to be alive right now in this moment. And if you can put that on the page, then an actor can eventually play that and an audience can connect with that too. So, uh, you know, my other goal is that when I write, when I'm teaching writing to uh, playwriting one, which is undergrads and a lot of people who've never done it before, I like to give them the same exercises I would give my master's students or even in a workshop with other professionals. I want to give them the same exercises. And sometimes I give them harder exercises. Mm -hmm. And my experience has been that when i give a really difficult exercise to early career early starting writers they walk through walls cuz they figure well oliver told me to do it so i'll just do it and before you know it they're like writing i don't know two three complex kind of ideas at the same time playing with time you know playing with space you know singing uh, vernacular different kind of idioms different languages And they do it without even realizing because I asked them to. So I believe in a kind of a green light uh, as a professor. I will put the red lights on if somebody does something really egregious. But mostly (laughs) that doesn't happen. And egregiousness at this point, you know, in the end, I think really what matters is that you don't try to step on anybody else. I will put the red lights on if somebody uh, is uh, cruel or um, dismissive of anybody. But short of that, go for it.
0: So last year, I'm mainly an actor. I started acting when I was a kid and I'd never done any writing except for, I think I was 12 years old and I wrote a three act play because my middle school told me to. And it was the longest thing I've ever written in my whole life. But that was the only thing I ever wrote. Um, And last year during quarantine, obviously the whole world shut down And there were no auditions. There was like nothing to do. And we kind of said, let's write, like, let's just do anything. And it's just a testament to how you taught Mick, because I was very, um, and you know this, I was so skeptical to like, we would say okay we're gonna write this scene like what do we think I would immediately like self-edit I was like no it's not good enough I don't I don't think I should do it today like it's not gonna be good and you were Mick were so good about just being like no it doesn't matter if it sucks like let's just write it today and like maybe something great will come out of it maybe it'll be terrible and we'll edit it later but let's do it and we ended up in what is it a month, we had the first draft of the script or something like that. Wow!
1: Yeah, we're on draft was... four now. Draft four is out for notes right now.
0: Yeah, and we yeah. started writing the second thing together. So it was really like, thank you for teaching that to him because it <laughs> it ended up making its way to me and it was really. He's already
2: helpful. got it in there. It starts. Yeah. It's it starts. You know, all I did was just bring it out a little bit because yeah. it was already <laughs> But boy, you did something cool and with your pandemic. Yeah. I mean, Right, there's a way to be productive even when you're stuck in the house?
0: Absolutely nice. and it's something that I never really thought of doing, I guess. Hello Didi as she's moving around the couch. <laughs> um it's something I never really thought of doing and for a long time I was like, no, I'm just an actor. Like I'm just going to say the words that other people write. Like I'm good. But man, writing just opened every door in my mind. I like I understand the scripts better. When I get them for auditions, I can break it down. Like I, I just understand so much more because we thought like, Hey, let's just sit down and write. We got nothing to do. Let's do it. And it's been really, yeah, it's been really incredible. And we're on to script two now. And it's, it's so much fun. I love it.
2: Yeah. That's the whole point in the end, isn't it? Is that yeah. you're having a good time. Like even when I wrote for Marlene, it was based on a certain joy that I was experiencing from being with her course, I wanted something, and she was not wrong. I wanted (laughs) in her pants. I did, you know. But mostly, it was, you know, I was having fun.
0: Yeah.
2: And even if I could have both, can't I? You know, you hope you have both, right? It's better if you have both. So the idea is, if you can place your art and your life together, you can go very far. And again, that doesn't mean it's wonderful. If it means awards and productions, but you can go very far. In enjoyment's sake, you can go very, very far in terms of I don't know understanding what it means to be alive in a moment, and that's uh, I don't know what's more valuable than that. It's more valuable than money to me, which is probably why <laughs> I don't live in a mansion right now. But it really is more valuable to me to be in love with the work I'm doing.
1: Absolutely, you've used that phrase two or three times now to be alive in a moment, and I think you're so right, and I, I, uh, you know, there. I was a business minor, and there was another path where I could have uh, chosen security, right? So, so, but nothing like being on stage makes me feel alive in a moment, like you're saying. We've talked to a lot of alumni uh, students. You're actually the first professor we've had on the podcast um, about the value of a theater degree, right? And not just SC students, we talked to somebody from Yale, NYU, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all, all the big ones around the country. And I, I mean, how do I say, I? you know, when you look at it from a dollars and cents point of view of the amount you invested to get the, you know, the piece of paper, and then you show up for an audition and casting directors don't acknowledge it as much as they do a guest star on a TV show, TV yeah. show right? The value in that sense, I, I think it's it's a little tough, but the as we've talked to more and more of these alumni, uh, get more of a sense of what the true intrinsic value of it is, is that you you cultivate your skills and you learn how to be alive in a moment. Um, That's kind of the journey I've taken on interviewing a bunch of people, but I am fascinated to ask you from the professor's standpoint, and you see all these students pass through your class and graduate and go on to professional life. um, In the simplest way, what to you is the value of a theater degree?
2: It's a good question of course you know parents are horrified <laughs> 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 what? what you mean you could have been in securities
1: <laughs> they, they know they know I from age four when I started negotiating my bedtime I could have been a lawyer but uh, they know that <laughs> you could have
2: made us all so much money you know but, so. And obviously we know that the work we do, it is a famous playwright said, you know, it's very hard to make a living, but you can make a killing. So we know that there are some people out there who are living very well doing what we do. Uh, But I do think that you, you nail it with the, the power of our degree is, um, um, it looks foolish uh, in the short term, but in the long term, what I think we're doing is connecting mind and heart, breath, and perhaps even just our um, our feet to the ground and the rootedness of that. And I don't wanna get all yoga or anything, but there's something to be said for being able to breathe, to know your connection and to in a certain way, be able to, I don't know, to let it pass, the, the light pass through you and the back out and that it affects your relations with each person you meet. So that when you've had four years of training you know, sitting on floors and breathing on each other like you do in classes at SC and other places. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the occasional experiences acting, but for the most part, you know, in lousy rehearsal rooms, um, making noises, weird noises, farting and burping, um, that it looks on the short term insane. And anybody walking through would be just very confused. But in the long term, you are connecting. To yourself in relation to others, that in ways that you can use, insecurities, selling things to people for sure, mm-hmm. um, but also just kind of making sense of the world. And the last few years, I don't need to get political, have made have been very complicated, have been you know really uh, painful for many of us. Uh, you know, we felt uh, disconnected more than once. Again, wherever you happen to be in a political spectrum. Um, But I think a theater education allows you to know that this too shall pass. When you read Shakespeare, when you read Aeschylus, you realize, oh, wow, they're me. Even though they talk some of these highfalutin words occasionally, underneath it, they're just going through what I'm going through. Just reading Lear right now with um, some of my my own mother, but definitely my, my, my wife's Mother and father, you know, just the connections. He just understood what it's like when you go through the stages of man, as he might call it. And when you're when you're studying for the theater, you are uh, sort of uh, your tentacles as a person are growing out. And even though you may it may look in the short term like you could have done all these other things that'll make connections, all of those tentacles lead to potential. Um, uh, trees and flowering opportunities all around you, more oxygen, more opportunities to meet people like the two of you who are now about to get married. But for that matter, the people before you met each other and all the wonderful connections, and now you together growing together with all the connections you're going to make. And honestly, when you are in securities or other places, you don't have as many opportunities to show what you can be You know, you make the money, you live in the nice place, and in a certain way you're walled. Whereas we live in a kind of a reality where, yeah, we have walls around us, but we're constantly curiously kind of, uh, our tentacles are taking us and uh, uh, we're, we're finding life in other places. So we have the opportunity to kind of get, even during a pandemic, to get outside ourselves. You were able to write a script and you're about to write another one, which means that in a certain way, you got outside your own skin. And that's, I think, in the end, what you do. You get outside your own skin. It's possible to do it. It sounds like whatever weird paranormal. It is a little weird and paranormal. It's a little magical, but you can do it. And But it takes time to learn. And you got to learn from the best.
1: Well, thank you for that. I it, One of the reasons we did start this podcast in the first place is for the parents of those 18 year olds who are saying, I want to go to theater school (laughs) and the parents who only are thinking and the students who are only thinking about the, you know, the numbers would say, "Okay, no, absolutely not. But if you are open to stepping outside yourself and not getting in the way of your work, you said allowing the light to pass through you, which is, I think, what good acting ends up being if you just allow the words to be the light and let it shine on the audience. It's, it's right there. So thank you for putting it. I knew you would put it in the best words yes. it has been said yet. So thank you for that.
2: <laughs> Let me add one thing as um, I put 14 years into, um, uh, as faculty and residents at USC. And uh, so I lived in uh, freshman communities particularly Parkside uh, International, which is a wonderful place. I'm not sure which one you lived in in your time, Mick, but at first year, most everybody's in a residential community. But I saw so many students who uh, came to USC and they were, I'll just say it, I'll just get to it. You know, it was usually they were engineers and they were engineers because they were good at it. Not like they weren't good at it, but definitely because their parents were pushing them. And you could see it over the first year and certainly into the second year when they were beginning to realize that there were other things that they wanted to do, but they had to do these things because again, they were being pushed towards it. And when push comes to shove, stuff happens. It's not easy. Now, several, many, maybe most of them stayed on track and I hope they're doing really well. I expect they are. Some veered off track and some crashed. And I think it's really important to know that those undergraduate years in particular, really, really important because worlds open up and they're going to continue to open up hopefully at my age and years from now, they'll continue to open for me. But when you're at about 18 to 22, the worlds are opening up the possibilities and the roads that you can take are opening all around you. And it's a shame if you don't at least explore them a bit.
0: I'm going to ask a question now that I ask every guest, but I'm going to modify it for you. Um, what do you think is the biggest misconception of being an actor? But also, what do you think is the biggest misconception of being a writer?
2: Wow, that's great. I guess I'll go actor first. I had a couple that popped in mind immediately. Are you a waiter? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a big one. And are you a ditz? Are you a waiter and are you a ditz? And obviously, you know, wait, waiting table is, you know, very, it's not easy. Um, and Marlene did it in her time. I was a busboy, by the way, I never made it to Waiter. And i only made it, I was a busboy for about two weeks before I got fired, (laughs) actually for a fight. It was ridiculous, but we don't have to go there. But so uh, there's a cliche that, um, and it makes sense, doesn't it? Because again, it has everything to do with where you wanna spend your time. You have to make the rent, but where will you spend your time? Auditions and hopefully eventually rehearsal, whatever it turns out to be in, in front of camera or on stage. So waiting table is a great thing. Our actors, ditzes, some of them are. <laughs> but again, yeah. I think the best of, you know, it, the ditziness in a certain way is also another way of just being kind of open and transparent, mm-hmm. uh, ready to receive. And so people that, you know, maybe feel a little defensive when someone's that open think, well, they're a ditz. But no, they're actually just kind of really receiving the world as it comes to them. So I would say for a writer, you know, that we're nerds maybe, and we are. Um, And let's see what else. What I would say as someone who's been around a lot of writers is I don't think we're very interesting. I think actors are much more interesting. Um, I think writers, we put out interesting things, but we're really boring. Ask my dog. I mean, I'm just sitting here all the time. Half the time when he comes over, he's like, dad, you've been sitting there for hours. Can we please go out? So I tend to think that writers you know, and I think we deserve it, that we have a kind of a boring moniker, anyone who knows us, but hopefully the work we do is not boring. Um, And then one other thing about, maybe back to the nerdiness, the idea that we're reading all the time, any good writer that I've ever met is reading all the time. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, uh, Something to be said about being, you know, you could say it as boring or methodical, when we were writing our, our screenplay, one of the things I kind of insisted on was, you know, especially living at home during quarantine and, uh, you know, being engaged, you know, we have to, this is not a date. We are in the office mm-hmm. right now from 9 a.m. Yeah. to 1 p.m. is time to write. And even if nothing is coming onto the paper or it seems like no great ideas are happening, we're going to sit in this room until 1 p.m., And then we can go to lunch, but you know, we gotta, even if it's crap, just let's put some stuff on the paper or put a few note cards up on the mirror. So we have done something today, you know?
0: And nine times out of 10, it like, we would sit here for two hours with nothing. And then all of a sudden a great idea would happen. And we'd be like, oh my gosh, it worked. And then write for like the rest of the day, it was great.
1: Yeah, but that, that sense of structure to allow open space for creativity is something that um, I, I definitely picked up from your class and from USC and also uh, from Stephen Mitchell's, the war of art uh, was a, just one of the many writing books that clicked and made sense to me is writers have a routine, you know, m- most of the best writers uh, I, I love the, idiosyncrasies and the it's kind of like sports and their superstitions if they didn't you know stretch their hamstrings in the same exact way they're not quite ready to play so do you have a, a stretch a warm-up a, a routine when you're sitting down to write
2: yeah I think I do um I'm going to tell you that and then I'll I'll, I'll I'll add a little bit to what you're saying because I do I realized it today that um you know i I have this wonderful dog who's 13 now, and I try to keep him young and try to keep myself young by walking at least three times a day. So we have a morning walk, and that turns out to be one of the ways I center myself. I call my mother, and um, who's she lives in San Pedro, so very close to to PV, and. And we, we always talk at that point. And then I, you know, walk the dog till he does his business and sometimes walk a little further. And by the time I'm back, I'm ready to work. So there's something about being in the air, whether it's hot or cold or windy or raining, I'll do it anyway. And it's something about being in contact with this dog. I love who loves me that kind of lifts me and supports me. And also maybe it's quiet, even though there's the occasional, you know, big bus or, uh, You know, a fire truck or something, for the most part, it's quiet. I hear birds, and and it's good for me to then return and center on whatever I'm uh, dealing with on the page that day. But I will now just add that I completely agree with you about schedule, and the best writers do it for sure. But I also believe that you write when you have something to write. So that when you have something to write, uh, which I hope is always but that you can do it for two minutes or you can do it for two hours or you can do it at eight in the morning or you can do it at 11 at night or you can do it at three in the morning. Um, That when there's something to write, write it. And that's why I've got, even on my desk now, I've got three, four of these. I got got these all over the place because I'm always writing something. And half the time it's what I'm gonna eat that night. But half the time, it's also like what I just somebody said something really cool, or I remembered something that happened when I was somewhere 20 years ago, or, you know, or whatever it is, and they're all together and to some extent like well this book is for USC and this book is for my new play, but at some point I'm writing about my new play in the USC book and I'm writing about USC in my new playbook. So it's just all for me. And I'm always writing. But I'm not worried because, um, again, I've done it for a long time. But I also feel I'm not gonna I'm not gonna beat myself up if indeed, as you occasionally happen, that one out of ten times you're sitting on your leather couch and it's one o'clock and nothing happened. All right, will happen tomorrow. Let's go eat. So I'm all about you and everyone listening being good to yourself as a writer. And don't beat yourself up too much.
0: This somehow reminds me of uh, we went. My dad lives in Las Vegas, and at one point during quarantine, we had I think we did we finish like a draft of the script or something like that. And then we were like, all right, so we're gonna go visit my dad. Visited my dad. Hadn't done any writing that whole week. <laughs> you know exactly where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Uh, hadn't done any writing that whole week, and you know, especially last year, like we said, we were in that routine. We had, we had our little schedule. This is kind of one of the rare times we kind of veered from our schedule to spend our time with some family. Uh, my dad had us do a dinner with one of his best friends at his house and we were like, Oh man, know, we don't know if we're going to go. We're not even really that hungry. And we were kind of just humming and hawing at it, showed up at the house and you had, somebody had said something and you we were like, Ashley, it's the dinner scene that we've been thinking about. And from then on, <laughs> we were like oh, notes, not like just mentally taking notes. Like we wrote notes down in like, in my phone, I was like, okay, that's a great thing that he said. So it, it was such a weird moment of like, oh, inspiration struck. And we're not even like sitting down to write. We were literally on vacation with like, just to go see my dad. And it totally struck. Wrote it down on my phone, came home and like furiously typed out the scene. It ended up working out great.
1: It was specifically a Filipino dinner, yeah. which I, you know, Ashley's had a million, but I've never seen that. And
0: and they're very hard to describe because I was like, it's chaotic, <laughs> but it's not really chaotic. But the second, the second we got there for dinner, you were like, oh my gosh, this is it. And it changed our whole perspective of yeah. the night because it became instead of us being like, oh man. We kind of got to be here. It was like, oh, this is this is going in our movie. This is great.
2: <laughs> you were open to receive, and I hope you ate a lot of lumpia and uh, adobo and. All of <laughs> stuff.
0: What's weird is that there was like it was like twenty percent Filipino food, and then the rest of it was like sushi, uh, curry, like rice and stuff like that. So it was an it was an all around the world kind of dinner, it and that perfect. made it into our script too.
1: um before we start to close up i i do want to ask you a little bit about acting um between your wife and all the many actors you've worked with in your plays you know actors are i think adjusting constantly and right now we're adjusting to are we ever going to go into a room and audition for a casting director again or will (laughs) we just be self-taping for the rest of our lives I also think actors are asked to do a lot of different things now. Um, Like social media has become kind of an essential part of the job. Anyway, how, how, um, you talked about being open and receiving. So, you know, through maybe through watching Marlene or just other actors you respect. Creating a career with longevity and adjusting to an adjusting industry throughout the decades um, and staying up to it, what do you think is the best approach and, and what have you seen that has worked for actors? And, and maybe this extends to writers as well.
2: Such a good question. And I know you really are speaking the truth that things have changed a lot in a short period of time. But I know now for an actor, as many credits as you might have, as much great film as you might be able to have on a reel it's also about your instagram followers which you're talking by the way to someone who's not on instagram and not on facebook cannot be reached that way i have i I don't do it and i know i'm missing out but i do not do it um marlene does it and only to a certain extent because i don't have to tell you guys you know whether you're on facebook or instagram when your fans start following and stalking and weird stuff you got to you got to be careful. Yes. So that's another thing I would say. But uh, it's changed a lot, and 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 it's part of the business. So I would be wrong to say don't do it. You cut. You got to do it. You got to do it, particularly when you're trying to find that first foothold. Mm-hmm. But then I look at Tony Hopkins. I look at Anthony Hopkins doing the father. For that matter, I look at Riz Ahmed doing Sound of Metal. I look at the work that we saw this year. I look at um, um, any number of great portrayals that we might've seen in the last few years on film. I look at some of the best actors on stage and I do not believe that they got where they did because of Instagram or Facebook. Mm. They got there because they have something to give and because their desire and their, um, their talent of course uh, was at a level that, uh, well, yeah, maybe you feel it on Instagram and Facebook, but mostly you feel it even through the Zoom. You feel it because there's somebody on fire. You know, Anthony Hopkins is over 80 years old and he's still on fire, you know? And that's, um, that's what you want, I think. So yeah, I, I, you gotta do it. And it's painful, I know, to, to audition on Zoom when you know that your strength is being in the room with someone, that your animal sort of warmth and, you know, that thing that you are is best when we're together. And indeed, even now when we're coming out of our bubbles, there's something about Zoom that's gonna probably continue. But I still believe it's possible to show that fire and show that desire and show that level of talent even through the screen. Um and whether or not you have enough followers to make a manager wanna want to uh work with you is one thing. But uh I think if you put the good work out, I do believe in the end people are gonna follow you, whether it's on Instagram or not.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh well again, uh we were so excited to have you on and thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Uh, showing us Don Aldo. I hope he's having a good nap at your feet there. Uh, we <laughs> it's always time for another walk. Oh, good. <laughs> the, the midday walk now. Okay. Midday good. Day walk. All right. Uh, we we always end with a, a fill in the blank question. So one word or one sentence. Um, the question is always acting is, but to you all pose acting is and writing is in one word or one sentence.
2: hmm Acting is joy. Writing is joy.
1: How about that? All right. My job. <laughs> Oliver, thank you so much.
2: Hey, um, I wish you the happiest of nuptials uh and the best honeymoon that you could dream of. And then when you're done, come back and get to work.
1: <laughs> thank you. Couldn't have said it better ourselves. Thank you.